We're a digital substation team looking at how do we increase the ability to use data and communicate between equipment to do things more efficiently, as well as support the increased amount of renewables and other changes in our energy landscape, which are happening quicker than they have in a long, long time. I'm Mark Thompson. I am the director of the digital delivery group within electric system engineering at National Grid. Welcome to the podcast, Mark. It's great to have you here. You know, we're all sort of laboring away at, at Mighty in the energy transition, the, the transition away from fossil fuels that the grid was constructed to support to one that, that uses renewables. And, and of course, that's enormously attractive and, and we're making progress, but it creates challenges. And I'm looking forward today to talking with you about what those challenges are and, and how they can be approached using digitization and other techniques. But maybe before we get going, could you orient us a little bit in, in how the grid works and, and where National fits into it? Sure thing. Uh, so National Grid is a electric transportation and delivery company in the northeast part of the U.S. Uh, we're responsible for the, the transmission of the wholesale power. So these are the, the big power lines that you see on the side of the road as, as you're driving down highways. They transport power at a bulk level, traditionally from the, the large generation plants, whether they're coal, nuclear, or gas to local cities, municipalities. Um, the other part of National Grid is the distribution companies. Distribution companies transform the power from the bulk system to the smaller poles and wires that you see within neighborhoods. These connections in the distribution system are made to uh, individuals' homes, as well as in industries and businesses. So within um, National Grid, we have our transmission organization for the bulk power. Uh, there's a substation group, which is actually the node between the transmission system down to the distribution system, which delivers power to the end users. So you're involved in transporting energy from power plants to us through this double layer system. If we talk about renewables, especially solar and wind, which, which are so-called non-dispatchable resources, um, they come on when they come on, they go off when they go off. You can switch them off, but you can't make them come on when the sun's not shining or the wind isn't blowing. How do you manage that on a grid that's basically built to be one way, carrying power from a power plant to somebody's home and where you have a lot of control over what's generated historically throughout the day as demand fluctuates? What, what do you do when you can't control it? As you mentioned, conventionally, over the last 100 plus years, there's been a one-way flow of power. And that, that one-way flow of power has been built into our systems. There's engineering involved in these systems, which makes sure that we provide safe and reliable power. So days like today, when there's a snowstorm, there's always the opportunity for uh, something to go wrong, a pole to fall down or not. So when that happens, how do we make sure that this entire grid, which is one big balancing act of the power being created versus the power being used, doesn't swing off balance and fall over. We have intelligent systems within the grid that protect this. And I'm sorry, this is a lot of background here, but I just want to kind of provide some context. Keep going. <laughs> so these intelligent systems continuously monitor the power grid. So monitor how much power is being used, how it's flowing, making sure that the equipment isn't over capacity. Similar to someone's house where you have a breaker panel. If you plug in too many applications, too many devices into an outlet, you could pop a circuit breaker. Same thing happens at a bulk power system and in the distribution system. So what gets complicated now is if you have the power strip plugging into your wall, traditionally you're just receiving power. But what happens if you start adding generation to that mix as well? 
that breaker in your house is sized, it doesn't matter which way power is flowing, it will operate once it hits 15 amps, 20 amps, whatever it is. So you can offload some of that device power usage by having generation. Same thing happens in the distribution system. So if you have PV on your roof, you see a large scale uh, wind farm someplace else, that could offset load. What gets challenging though, is that those intelligence within those protection systems it's, it's a little more complicated than that breaker in your house where it doesn't matter which way power is flowing. At large power amounts, the engineering is more complex and there's a lot of directional components there. So as we increase the amount of distributed power, whether that distributed power is from PV, solar, biomass, what, whatever it is, the complexities and how the power flows in the grid increases and it becomes much more challenging to manage this in order to provide a safe and reliable power system. So some of that must be happening because the renewable sources are closer to the consumer than the substation. In other words, they're in the distribution system so that you've got, you've got reversals going on there that you can't control. Absolutely. That's a great point. So the transmission system, honestly, the bulk power system has been designed for two-way power flow since the beginning. You have these large plants connected at these precise locations with load centers all over. As a plant goes up or goes down, it's been... It's been designed for that two-way power flow. When you get down to the distribution system, we have not conventionally had generation on the distribution system, or very little. So it's really been like the the like the home analogy with the circuit breaker panel there. So as we're adding more renewable generation, it's changing how we look at these systems, how we protect these systems. We we don't want to have a backflow onto our power system, which could cause an injury or uh, damage equipment, which will take out customers. So there's controls that need to be placed into service at these substations, which are really the nexus of these links, as well as on our distribution system. A term called smart grid is something folks may have heard about. And this is the intelligence controls and communication between these devices. That's really where my group comes into play. We're a digital substation team looking at how do we increase the ability to use data and communicate between equipment to do things more efficiently, as well as support the increased amount of renewables and other changes in our energy landscape, which are happening quicker than they have in a long, long time. What sorts of things do you have to change because of the, say, a solar array comes on in the middle of the day when the sun is shining in the sky? I mean, what what do you have to do differently than you do in the fossil or one-way grid that occasions the use of these sort of digital controls? Yeah, so another component with the renewable energy or distributed generation generally is the intermittency of the supply. The power is not constant. Even though it's flowing now two directions, it's also flowing intermittently. It could be flowing at 100% one minute, and then an hour and a half later, it's at zero. So these load flows are changing throughout the day. Uh, That's completely new for us. The systems within these substations, which are acting like, like I mentioned, the breakers in someone's home panel, were originally designed for static conditions. These variable conditions now are requiring uh, some flexibility and automation that was never required in the past. Right now, we're really bumping to the limits in how much renewables we can put on some parts of the grid because of our requirements of these static conditions. There's some sort of variability everywhere. There, there always is. But if we want to go above a certain percentage of renewables on um, our power system, we need much more flexibility. And systems like ours, where there's this digital substation system, we can automatically, we're setting up the stage and we're not doing it right away, but we're setting the stage to automatically analyze uh, the generation, the load components, 
and then make intelligent decisions on how to protect and uh, monitor the grid in, the, in real time. So where are we in, in converting our grid from conventional resources to renewables on a percent basis in New England, in your, your service territory? I think in New England, we're actually ahead of the curve a little bit in some regards. We have some very ambitious uh, state targets. Um, National Grid itself is targeted to have net zero carbon emissions by 2050. We're well along the way to achieving that. And there's many components to that. The influx of renewable generation is going to be key for that, uh, as well as all our alternative energy sources. One thing to take into consideration when we're looking at the power grid is it's a regulated entity. In the past, it's been considered a natural monopoly in such that there's a lot of physical barriers to entry. You need to construct these large power lines. In the past, large power plants as well. So therefore, it's been regulated. That regulation is done at multiple levels. There's the federal regulation, which similar to like the FBI, if you want to take the, uh, the law enforcement analogy, which is monitoring interstate commerce or interstate uh, the bulk power. FERC. So that's FERC, exactly, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission. And then at the state level, there is um, state regulators, the New England PUC, the New York State uh, Public Service Commission. They are responsible for the distribution systems within those states. And where I'm going with this is in New England, we have some of the most ambitious renewable goals at the state level. It's really an exciting time to be in the industry. New York, for example, is, is pushing um, something called REV. They're reforming the energy vision. We're um, really trying to put the consumer in the middle of the future of the energy industry. And how do you enable these distribution systems that can be interacted with by the consumer and also encourage the increased amount of renewable energy? So that's a long-winded response to your question. But So we're, what are we sort of in the sort of 10 to 15% range now in, on your system of, of renewables? Not non-hydro renewables, by the way. I mean, because you could control hydro. Yeah, and I, actually, that's one thing in New York. There's a lot of hydro renewables right now. Niagara Falls, of course, yeah. is one of the first ones, as well as some of the ones in the St. Lawrence Seaway. Um, I, I'll be honest, Rob, I, I don't know that percentage. That sounds about right. What's interesting is, is as we're increasing this, we are getting to the point now where 10 years ago, we did not really have these grid stability challenges. We're starting to see that now in certain regions. And this is where digitalization is helping us, especially on specific feeders. So a feeder is one circuit coming from a substation supplying several streets or a section of a city. What we're finding is that we're reaching penetrations of renewables on that feeder, which are above what the current systems can handle. So we're unfortunately having to discourage. Um, we're not able to connect as much renewables on those circuits as maybe we would like to ideally. Um, especially in rural areas where um, there's land, lands available for, say, large-scale PV installations, um, we're having issues there. And that, that's starting to come into the play on the on the transmission level as well. Like in northern New York and western Mass, uh, there's areas which could handle or are prime areas for large-scale renewables. And if we want to meet some of the state's targets, whether it's 50% renewables or more in the next uh, couple decades, the infrastructure definitely needs to be increased um, in order to support that. Okay, so let's just unpack that a little bit, because I'm, I'm imagining that I'm living in a rural area. In fact, I am living in a <laughs> rural area right now. Then I've got neighbors. I might myself have solar panels on my roof. I might have a wind station down the street, and suddenly there's a sunny, windy day. And I and my neighbors aren't consuming all the electricity that's being produced on that feeder. And so I guess that means that you've got to deal with it. It's coming back to you 
at your substation, and you've got to try to redeploy that throughout the system. Is that kind of the, the fundamental situation here? And I guess the reverse situation as well, where you're counting on them to be producing a certain amount of wind or solar on a given day, and it doesn't happen. And you've got to find the power to get to them. But, but how does digitalization help you solve that problem? Both of those are two instances that we have to accommodate. We have to uh, we have some very smart engineers and planners looking at those scenarios. And before we interconnect any sort of large scale renewables, those are the considerations we have to take into place. Today, based on certain percentages and the existing equipment and service, there are some limits onto the capacity that can be installed there in order to one uh, just allow a more reliable power system. So, what digitalization allows us to though is Taking a step back here, at the substation, there are these intelligence systems, which in the past, for the last hundred years, were originally magnets and coils and things like that, who could monitor the power, the, the electrical waveforms, and then make predetermined decisions based on that. So they could detect, did a line fall over? Is there a short? And let's isolate that short so that it's not a wide-scale blackout. Over the last hundred years, we've had progressively more stringent reliability standards and requirements after several of our large-scale blackouts have, have required that. So those engineering practices and those devices have protected the power system. But that protection is based on the generation and the consumption of that power. And it, there's certain parameters it has to meet. So if it's outside the parameters, it's because something it was assumed something had happened that was not good. So that, that was how it has in the past. What digitalization comes into play as we're replacing these devices that have communicated in a very analog means. They've had miles upon miles of copper cables tying them together to communicate, whether it's power system measurement values or um, reactions to that. By enabling more of a network-based communication between these devices and also having much smarter devices there, we're enabling a much more uh, flexible power system. And what that means now is that if that generation changes by 50%, 100%, but it changes and we can still see it's because of generation coming out load online rather than losing load customers, now we know that it's a normal event, not an unexpected event, and therefore we're not going to trip the circuit. Therefore, we can allow greater numbers of generation or distributed generation onto these circuits as well. So it's, it's really the flexibility. It's the optionality which it gives us which we hadn't had in the past. You've gone away from a sort of a fault-based operating scheme where, to one where you sort of have a continuum of faults, if you like, or conditions that you just have to deal with. Yeah, it's still fault-based, but now we're, we're smarter. We can know if a fault's not a fault. Is it really just a uh, normal operating condition, which is outside the initial parameters? Uh-huh. How computerized is the process? I mean, digitization implies that there's a big computer out there someplace <laughs> making decisions. There's still still a bunch of people sitting in front of computer terminals deciding things on the fly. <laughs> I, I guess I'm going to start, first of all, I'm, saying I'm very proud of where we are right now. National Grid just installed one of the first fully networked system protecting live line uh, power systems in in the U.S. This is the first of its kind. But that said, the industry itself has slowly transitioned from these electromechanical devices, really that started, I'd say the 70s and 80s, uh, started using these microprocessor devices. These microprocessor devices operate similar to the older devices, but now instead of having 20 unique devices, you'd have one purpose-built computer, if you will, or even before that transistor digital machine. 
but they were still very much interconnected by dozens upon dozens of cables. There really was no network technology. And they were also set by engineers. So there's these uh, specialist engineers sitting within an office who are planning what the power system will do in different scenarios. And based on those circumstances, they input settings into uh, these microprocessor now based machines. As we move forward, what we're enabling is these machines, these purpose-built computers are now we're, we're going from this physical architecture interconnecting them to more of a digital network-based architecture. I think it was the MIT connection with uh, Robert Metcalf where he said the, the value of a network increases exponentially based on the number of nodes. And that's true here as well. The more devices we have talking to each other, the more power we have in the future to, one, protect the system in regards to these now, what once was abnormal power conditions, these renewable generations, distributed generation, to making that more of the normal. So we have flexibility with a, a dynamic power grid. Uh, we can also make much smarter asset health decisions. We can know proactively if a transformer potentially could fail, as well as monitor the grid in just a, in a much smarter way than we have in the past where we had to use rule of thumbs or had physical maintenance going to the site, taking samples. Now we're continuously monitoring its its performance. So do you control me, Mark? I mean, I'm out to say <laughs> I've got I got a solar array on my roof and I'm generating power and the sun is shining and I'm happy. Do you have any say over whether that power flows out onto the grid or not? No, we really don't today. And I'm pretty optimistic and passionate about where we're coming from a technology point of view. But if you compare it to other industries, the utility industry still is, it has a long ways to go. So within the utility industry, we're digitizing our internal systems. We're trying to enable these future connections as well. And when it comes to the, the customer connections, we, we have limited control there. Um, I mentioned New York Rev earlier. One of the goals is to make a transactional marketplace where your solar inverter, which is responsible for uh, converting the DC to AC, could be connected to this marketplace. And depending on real-time conditions or marketplace conditions, um, parameters, it could make a decision to charge up your local battery or power directly to the grid or disconnect entirely. We're not there yet. Um, I think there's a lot of great thoughts right now on how do we do that. And there are also some pilots in service where we're starting to do this a little bit. But generally, it's um, we, we do have a little bit of a ways to go until we have the, the full connection. Um, and there's a lot of other concerns um, that we have to think about before we get there as well. Well, one of those concerns has got to be storage. I mean, it's it's one thing to have a computer that's flipping switches and trying to keep the, the system balanced all the time and from overloading. But sometimes we just generate more power than we're consuming when we have a lot of wind and solar connected to the system. And so so people talk about adding storage devices. And certainly there's a lot of activity at MIT to develop new storage technologies, a lot of activity elsewhere as well, of course. Do you have a sense of how far we can get though with without storage or, or to what degree perhaps digitization can mitigate the need for storage on the system? I mean, are we, are we anywhere near a limit? Uh, no, we're nowhere near a limit. I think uh, energy storage has been considered the, uh, the holy grail of uh, the power industry for a little while now. Um, it would allow a lot of our aspirations around renewables, a lot of our challenges we have. Because take a step back. A minute ago, I, I talked about the balancing act of the power grid. It's not like a water system where we can easily build a tank or natural gas where we can fill up old caverns. Um, the power grid is really about creating the, the generation to match the load. 
and balancing this. If it gets off balance, the whole system can fall down. So energy storage gives us a whole lot of flexibility there. That said, the technologies around energy storage, as you and I'm sure your listeners know, have not advanced nearly as much as, uh, say, some of the technological uh, microprocessor-based devices have. So within National Grid, we do have several pilots, um, and we're actually interconnecting these uh, large-scale battery storage uh, pilots to um, our digital substations and trying to enable this a smart, a much smarter approach to it. What do I mean by that? There's there's a couple large-scale uh, batteries in our system which are acting as pilots, which are communicating back, and we're we're trying right now to gather data about how well are they responding to grid conditions, working with some key vendors around that as well. But to your original point, where are we on the transition? I think we're very early right now. Um, I think there's some parts of our system that could use it sooner than later, but we definitely have a long ways to go. Sometimes people talk about using storage devices and other techniques, including digitization, as as non-wires mm-hmm. approaches to upgrading the network. In other words, you install a storage device or a switch or some power electronic device that enables you to adjust power flows in a way that keeps the load on a on a given line within its existing range so that you don't have to add to it. We've been looking at, you know, how do you how do you understand those sorts of investment decisions in, in my group? Are you looking at trying to minimize network investments with these techniques? Is that a big part of what you're doing? Or are you just trying to keep the system from catching fire? <laughs> <laughs> I guess goal number one is to keep it from catching fire and make sure no one gets hurt. Goal number two is definitely to drive efficiencies. So I talked a little bit about the reduction in the physical infrastructure when it comes from uh, communication infrastructure, the number of copper cables connecting devices together to communicate, the number of devices we need using these digital microprocessor-based computers. We could have multiple functions in a single box, have redundant boxes, and still have less of them. Going to what you're saying from the non-wires alternative, that, that's a really interesting approach as well. I've seen um, digital substations being used. Actually, I think there's a pilot in Germany right now where they, they've installed large-scale um, solar array. And because of the intermittency of that generation, the load on that line was going, it shift drastically from uh, very high levels to near, at near capacity to very low levels. And the digital substation was used to analyze what that looked like and actually change these protection systems so that, yeah, we didn't, we didn't damage any of the equipment, did not have anything burned down, as you, as you mentioned. Uh, but it also helps by reducing the amount of added infrastructure there. Another component of this is monitoring what is actually on the line. So real-time line monitoring can allow us to maximize how much power is flowing across that transmission line. In the past, we made rules of thumbs. We assumed worst case was a 30C degree day. As the temperature increased, the line would dip. As the load on line increased, the, the line would sag as well. And it really limited how much capacity we could have on that. Now we can actually monitor, okay, what's the temperature of that line? What is How much power is really flowing across there? And having more dynamic ratings for that line. So that could help save us from installing new infrastructure to support larger renewables or load shifting. These non-wire alternatives I'm seeing being um, investigated for a variety of installations. So if, if I were a, a, a Russian hacker, I'd be listening to this program <laughs> thinking, well, this is great. I can uh, you know I can get involved in manipulating lines and, and blowing the system up. And cybersecurity has got to be a big concern for you and, and, and risk to the system. How do you handle that? Are you going through the internet? <laughs> First, no, we're not going through the internet. I can say that with some confidence here. But that said, uh, you're right. This is the first thing I, 
people think about, or one of the first things they think about is what are the potential nefarious uses for all this interconnectivity? There was two principles that legacy power grid used to, for security. One was security by obscurity. I'm sure the listeners may have heard about that. And the other was air gapping. Air gapping is having maybe maybe having an intelligent system, but not letting it talk to anything else. So I'll, I'll address each of those individually. Security by obscurity is no longer valid. These systems are becoming way too prevalent. We're also, one of the things driving the use of these systems, driving the efficiencies and the capabilities are standardization. So industry standardization, one example, if you listeners want to look it up, is IEC 61850. It's a purpose-built suite of standards for communication within the power grid focus particularly on power grid performance and uh, safety. That said, this is an industry standard. You can download the, the mechanics of how these devices will communicate. There's been instances, for example, in 2015 and 16, there was hacking incidents in, in the Ukraine, which brought down part of the distribution system. And tracing that back, the use of IEC 16850 was a contributing factor, as well as some of the proprietary system data being published on the internet, which really set the blueprints for anyone to see that and do what they did was take down part of that grid. So when we're designing our digital substation, these are some of the considerations we're taking in from day one. Security is no longer an add-on component. Security is part of the design from the beginning. I mentioned a while ago FERC, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission. To complicate the regulatory seen, there's a uh, subgroup called NERC, North American Energy Reliability Council, who's responsible for security and reliability standards. They set general compliance guidelines, which in the past we've typically tried to meet, or we've, we've not tried, we've had to meet. We're no longer just meeting the compliant guidelines. Now, how can we proactively design these systems to be best in practice? And uh, to be honest, this is one of the challenges I face is that we're, as a regulated industry, uh, most of our compliance and regulatory aspects are based on previous events. When it comes to security, we can't be looking at what happened in the past. We got to look at what could happen in the future. And that's something uh, every single day now as we're designing these systems, we're taking into account. So let's talk about standards in 61850 and what that, that means. I mean, does it simply ask you to operate in a particular way or design in a particular way to ensure compliance so that vendors, for example, can sell their equipment to you and invest in engineering and manufacturing with some confidence that it will be useful? Or is this about protecting you from invasion from the outside? Or, or I mean, what's its purpose? The original purpose of 16850 was not around protection or security. It was really around interoperability and defining the rules of engagement for how network-connected power system equipment will operate. The power industry has lagged a lot of other industries when it comes to the use of intelligent electrical devices and networks. We're 2021 right now, and we're, we're just now implementing some of the first in the world uh, network-connected devices. Because of the need for reliability and safety, this industry is a little more hesitant to invest in some emerging technologies. I think, as you, we talked in the early part, some emerging market conditions, such as renewable penetration and whatnot, require us to be more innovative. But 61850 allows that the use of network-connected intelligent devices to interop between vendors also defines how do we engineer these systems, test these systems, so that whether it's a utility in the U.S. or someone overseas, we, we can get some efficiencies at scale. We can do it more effectively and more efficiently, and there's a certain level of confidence that it's going to operate the way we expect it to. Just like your Bluetooth mouse, 
there's a set of standards behind that so that you can plug it into any USB computer. Same sort of thing uh, when it comes to 62850. It allows any 62850 enabled device, if the vendors truly follow it, to be interoperable. Security, that said, is something we have to be very cognizant of because the standard itself is not secure. There's security aspects of the standard, but generally it it requires additional thought and um, engineering practice to make it secure. Another concern of mine when it comes to security is in regards to the disparity between the state and federal regulators. So there's some very ambitious and really, really great targets for the increased use of renewables and some net zero goals with at the state level. But these state goals are often uh, focused so much on the renewables that I, I personally am a little concerned about a disconnect when it comes to things like cybersecurity. Entities like NERC, uh, the North American Energy Reliability Council, have cybersecurity targets, but they're not effective at the state level. It's only the wholesale bulk power system that uh, needs to be compliant with those regulations. So um, when it comes to the state and some of these really cool, innovative power systems that they're trying to push, uh, there may be a gap when it comes to security. So you mean states are, are encouraging or trying to mandate utilities to do things that take them outside the safe operating range in terms of cyber, at least? I think the state is encouraging innovation, which is a great thing. I think we need to encourage innovation. I think as we're encouraging innovation, we need to be cognizant of the impacts that that innovation may have. And I, I don't think we should discourage innovation. I think instead what we should do is encourage innovation, not just from a renewable climate-focused policy point of view, but also from a security and a reliability point of view. So instead of relying on reactive, punitive cybersecurity measures, how do we encourage best practice moving forward? Uh, we're trying to encourage some proactive policy around renewables. Let's also look at some of the other aspects that are required for the integration of renewables into the power system. So this is really recognizing this this this, this transition of ours is a global phenomenon. And there are economies of scale to be realized by enabling a marketplace in devices and, and stability and practice and training that are enabled by having common standards amongst different utilities in different parts of the world. You guys operate outside New England as well. And I know that you have some firms in the UK as well. Can you tell us, are, are we lagging as a, as a nation? You know, they're very aggressive about wind, especially in the UK. Are we on the tail of that or at the forefront? It's kind of interesting. So a little bit about the, the digitalization journey at National Grid, at least, at least from my point of view in the digital substation world. So some of these technologies, standard, the 62850 standard has been out since the mid-2000s. Uh, we've investigated it in the early uh, of around 2010, 2011, decided not to pursue it. We weren't quite ready for it. 2016 is when we really started down this journey in earnest. At that point in time, I, I got involved and I, I started reaching out to some peers. It's interesting because across New England, other utilities in the, the Northeast have actually been using 62850 now for several years, a better part of a decade. And I started also reaching out outside of just the Northeast or even the U.S. There's some very um, ambitious goals in some of the Canadian utilities where they're using these standards. Our counterparts, half the companies also in the U.K., as you mentioned, they're responsible for the electric and gas transmission networks there. They piloted some 62850 systems for probably a better part of 10 years as well. Uh, and mainly in Europe, I've uh, worked with some of the utilities there where they're, they're using this as their standard. Uh, they've seen the efficiencies in deploying this type of technology. The same is true elsewhere in the world. Where you're not seeing as much of it is it is 
although a digitally interconnected substation is cheaper than a conventional substation with the same functionality, if you're not as concerned about reliability and keeping the power grid online for 99.99% of the times, uh, you could probably skimp on some of these protections. So in some of the developing world where they just, they have nothing today and they're trying to get something there as quick as possible, uh, they're not using the digital technologies as much. But other parts of the world, uh, for example, a counterpart of mine from another utility has been helping Puerto Rico uh, get back on the feet after the, the hurricane a couple of years ago. And as they redesigned their grid, uh, digitalization is one of the key tenets. And the reason for that is this reliability that we've talked about, but the interconnection of renewables there. They want the ability to leverage multiple energy sources. And the flexibility that digitalization allows is really necessary for some of their goals they're looking at. I am remembering what a mess that was in Puerto Rico. We had an event at Mighty to try to sort of get our heads around it and, and look for opportunities. And my memory was that the, the major power generating stations were on all on one side of the island, the south side of the island, whereas the industry is mostly on the north side of the island. And what happened during the hurricane was that the lines carrying power over the mountains to the load centers on the north were disrupted. And so there was a lot of interest in, in trying to sort of enable the system to stay up almost entirely distributed resources and then no access to those centralized power plants. There were a lot of ambitious discussions. I don't remember exactly how far that, that went, but, but islands essentially, is my point, are a really interesting case because unlike the power system that we live in here where we have all kinds of sources of electricity and a diverse range of assets, including you know, hydro from Canada, uh, solar from southern Massachusetts, I mean, nuclear, you don't have that in the island economy, especially the lack of a hydro, a large hydro supply. Uh, so balancing becomes very difficult when you have a high penetration of renewables. I, I just wonder how far you went in your work in Puerto Rico, or are you involved in other islands trying to deal with this, this very high penetration challenge? Yeah, to be honest, I, I'm, I'm not. Um, that was part of actually a, a working group, which we formed. So shortly after we started a program, as I was reaching out to counterparts uh, across the industry, we formed a, a group of about two dozen of us, uh, utility partners across North America, so U.S., Canada, the EU, even South Asia. We get together on a quarterly basis. One of those members is the one that's leading that effort in Puerto Rico. So I'm not personally involved there. I have talked to them, and we've shared some lessons learned as far as what we're doing and how they could maybe learn from that as well. But I, I don't really have any experience with the island um, architecture itself. We may find ourselves learning from all kinds of island systems in the future as we, <laughs> as we get farther and farther into this. Last question. What about China? Are they adhering to the same sorts of standards in China as we are? Are they encountering the same problems, finding ways to solve them that we could also reflect on? Given the, the current, uh, I guess, geopolitical considerations, our interactions with China are definitely limited. Uh, we we do see some Chinese products from time to time coming in, and we're seeing them using these standards as well. Um, this is a set of standards. It, they, they work, so they're, they're using them. Uh, that said, there was an executive order that was uh, under our previous administration that was pushed and currently been put on hold that looked at supply chain and also investigating, um, really understanding where it came from. And it did not name names, but it, it did allude to several several nation states where we wanted to be very conscious of before we accepted any products. And this is this is kind of fresh off the presses, but I, I do know there was an incident where supply chain, where it was a subcomponent within a subcomponent, th there were some security compromises in there. 
And that's something we're realizing now that it's not just the overall computer you're buying. It could be a chip on that computer that was bought by someone three levels down supply chain. So we're responsible for understanding what that supply chain looks like and knowing the risks associated with that as well. This isn't your grandfather's grid. <laughs> we're breaking new territory. Mark, it's been great talking with you. Uh, I've enjoyed this. I hope our, our listeners have learned something about how the system operates. And, and I look forward to speaking with you again about opportunities. Thank you. Rob, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. <laughs>